This is Africa Digest. Zero, good evening and welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance coming to you from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on frequency 9625 kHz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa. My name is Pomela Lezondi and in studio I'm with Anne Musa, Wissani Matebula and Musi Budimakura. Let's take a look at the top stories at 1700 hours. The International Committee to Protect Journalists accuses Kenyan authorities of undermining press freedom. Nearly half of the globe's 4.5 billion people will not meet their nutritional needs by 2040. And in sport, Zifa president expresses fears that Zimbabwe could be kicked out of the 2018 World Cup. Let's take a look at the news with Anne Musa. A very good afternoon to you. Kenya says the mastermind of the Garissa University attack is among four key Al-Shabaab leaders killed in a U.S. drone attack. Mwenda Njoka, spokesperson for the Interior Security, says a drone strike in Somalia killed Mohamed Kuno, alias Gamadiere. He is a former Kenyan teacher linked to the attack, which left at least 147 people dead. The Kenyan government had offered a more than $53,000 reward for his arrest. Al-Shabaab claimed responsibility for the April massacre, the worst in the East African nation. Militants have exchanged shots with an Egyptian Coast Guard vessel in the Mediterranean Sea, causing it to catch fire. There's been no immediate claim of responsibility for the attack on the coast of the northern Sinai. Incidents at sea are rare, though Egypt is battling an Islamist insurgency in the region. On the first of this month, 100 militants and at least 17 members of the security forces were killed in a single day of clashes. South African political party, the Freedom, Freedom Front Plus, has described as credible the source of information that the South Africans detained in China were arrested for suspected espionage. Five of the ten South Africans arrested in China last week are expected home tomorrow, while the other five are still being held. Freedom Front Plus chairperson Peter Grunewald says the information suggests that advanced technological equipment was found with some of the individuals in the group of the tourists that included the South Africans. We think it is a trustworthy source. There are many questions unanswered about the arrest of the South Africans and other people in China. And that's why the Freedom Front Plus say that uh, the government should play open cards about the real reason why the group of South Africans uh, in China was arrested uh, and detained at the moment. The real reason for the arrest is that they had some technological equipment with them which could be used for espionage. And it can be used, for instance, to spy on data and servers. And it has been said that it has been found with some of the individuals in the tour group. South Africa's initiative to improve government's foreign policy has been strengthened following the launch of two foreign policy organs. Relations between the South African Association of Former Ambassadors, High Commissioners and Chief Representatives and the South African Council on International Relations have been formed 
have been formalized. The newly established think tank consists of retired and serving diplomats, as well as people from business, labor and civil society. South Africa's International Relations Minister, Maite Nkwana Mashibane. These two organizations are our public diplomacy in action. They will speak for us and speak to us if they think we are going off ramp. They will also be our ears, but they will also offer a helping hand and advice as we move forward together for a better South Africa, as I said, as we implement Agenda 2063. And finally, police in Zambia have arrested editor-in-chief of the Post newspaper Fred Membe. It's over a story the paper carried, alleging special advisor to the president got a $200,000 bribe from a Chinese national to fix an appointment. Membe and reporter Mukusha Funga were detained in the capital Lusaka before appearing in court. The two have been denied bail and remain in custody. The paper carried the story on the 17th of April. That's the news headlines at 5.30 Central African time. Africa Digest. You're listening to Africa Digest. Thank you very much, and it's 17.05 Central African Time. Now, the International Committee to Protect Journalists, or CPJ, has accused Kenyan authorities of undermining press freedom in the country, painting a grim picture of a media industry under siege. According to a report released by the organization in the capital, Nairobi, most journalists in Kenya feel vulnerable to legal harassment, threats and attacks, while news outlets are constantly manipulated by powerful politicians and advertisers. Mike Konyo has this story for us from Nairobi. According to a report released by the International Committee to Protect Journalists, CPJ, Kenyan journalists feel more vulnerable to legal harassment, threats and attacks, while news outlets are constantly manipulated by powerful politicians and advertisers. Despite passing a new liberal constitution in 2010, Kenyan authorities have since introduced a series of laws that undermine self-regulation, and allow for harsh fines and jail terms for journalists. And according to the African coordinator for the CPJ, Susan Valentine, her organization is more concerned with the state of the press freedom in Kenya because the country is the leader in the region with less press freedom. My name is Sue Valentine. I'm the Africa Program Coordinator for the Committee to Protect Journalists for CPJ. Kenya, we are concerned about what's happening in Kenya because Kenya is an important leader in a region where there is very poor press freedom. But because Kenya has a good constitution, is a stable, strong government, we almost are holding it to a higher a higher uh, threshold uh, to actually live up to the expectations in its constitutions and to be a leader in press freedom. We do not want Kenya to slip backwards and become like Ethiopia 
or Rwanda or Somalia in terms of the way that the press are treated in those countries. And so we believe that what happens in Kenya can lead the region and we want them to make sure that press freedom is protected and the media is free to operate. There is evidence, and you can look at it in the report, of Kenyan journalists being threatened for covering issues around land, for covering issues on corruption at county level. And so there are cases where, the, where journalists are threatened or killed and we don't see justice. And we are concerned that certain topics are extremely dangerous for journalists to cover in Kenya and it shouldn't be that way. The press should be protected and free. And according to a leading lawyer and journalist Henry Miner, Kenyan media looks successful on the face value but is structurally flawed. In a few words, I think... The Kenyan media is a media that on face value is seen to be highly successful but structurally flawed. So our success is built on loose ground. It's not built on sound law because we've retained most of the draconian laws, some of them colonial laws like criminal defamation, like publication of false news and and others. Even though the constitution has made big progress to begin guaranteeing media freedom, access to information and freedom of expression than it had done ever before. And it is our duty that we try and strengthen and reform all the laws so that they conform to the constitution. But also the piece of journalism has to be more responsible. We still see the country is caught between media owners who are politicians and professional practitioners. So professional practitioners are not able to do their work properly if the owners of the media want to dictate what editorial content must be carried. And despite the government's harassment of the media in Kenya, the International Committee to Protect Journalists says media ownership in Kenya has been very worrying. Susan Valentine again. We're concerned that the ownership in Kenya, particularly with politicians owning uh, some of the media houses, and then also the commercial interest, which means that they are vulnerable to advertising being withdrawn by government or by big corporations, can make it difficult for them to, to protect the editorial side of things, to allow the newsroom to be independent. Uh, and we're see, we know of cases where journalists have reported critically on government and then suffer Subsequently, the newspaper has been threatened by government to withdraw advertising. So that pattern of ownership is problematic. There isn't as much diversity as I think would be ideal. And we are concerned that those media houses may compromise editorial independence in search of political or commercial favors. The report warns that the deteriorating climate for press freedom in Kenya comes at a crucial time for continued development of Kenya's democracy and economy. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Still in Kenya, U.S. President Barack Obama will make his first trip to the country as president next week. His father was from the village of Kokelo, near the northern edge of Lake Victoria. Despite the family ties, Africa has not been a major part of President Obama's foreign policy, and many think he should have visited sooner. But many Kenyans living in America are proud of the president's connection to their country. Kate Fisher reports from Washington. Jane Ruggieri moved to America 15 years ago. Born and brought up in Kenya, she's now made her home in Delaware on the East Coast. She moved here with her four sons, who are amongst the 100,000 Kenyans living in the country. Despite the wait of seven years, she's now delighted that Barack Obama will visit his father's homeland as president. 
there's going to be a tribe in Kenya where his father comes from. They will not sleep for days. They will dance in the streets of that country like nobody ever knows. You see it on TV. They cannot sleep. I don't even know they'll have to mount the kind of security because that is the one community we know that can celebrate its heroes. And for Obama, he is considered a superhero. But despite the family connections, Africa hasn't always been a key part of President Obama's foreign policy. His administration has spent a lot more time and money trying to deal with problems in the Middle East and developing greater links with Asia. Although last year the White House hosted the African Leaders Summit and the Young African Leaders Initiative. President Obama will visit Kenya as part of a trip which includes attending the Global Entrepreneurship Summit. Some, like David Amakobi, an immigration activist, see that as part of a wider policy to stop giving Africa handouts in favor of asking them to support themselves. I think President Obama has given Africa some tough love, which any kid should give the parents. He, he doesn't feel like uh, it's bad to tell Africans, you know what? You, you, you need to do business. And when you do business, you get respect and you get more money. President Obama didn't visit Kenya when he last went to Africa in 2013 because the country's leader, Uhuru Kenyatta, had been charged with crimes against humanity by the International Criminal Court. Those charges have now been dropped. But this year, he will make it to his father's homeland. The White House is describing this summit as a global platform for deepening relations between the U.S. government and African leaders. Kate Fisher, Washington. It's Mandela month in South Africa, culminating in the call for 67 minutes of your time to do good on International Madiba Day on the 18th of July. And Channel Africans have promised their time on Friday, the day before Mandela Day. The station will visit Kalsatole Center in Soweto and will spend 67 minutes planting food seeds in order to establish a food garden for the center. This is through the assistance of a fertilizer and seed distribution company, Fertilis, alongside their founder, Ms. Carmen Nottingham, will also be present to contribute towards this initiative. During this time, the station's Shinyanja service will cross live from the venue to the studio, and thereafter the Salozi team will also do live crossings. But what will you be doing for 67 minutes on Mandela Day? Let us know so we tell the rest of our listeners. Contact us on www.facebook.com forward slash Channel Africa or simply SMS us at plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. You can also find us on Twitter at Channel Africa One. And if you're not so media savvy, don't you despair. You can also write to us at 913-13 Auckland Park, Johannesburg, South Africa, 2006. Get in touch with us and tell us what good you'll be doing on Mandela Day. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. And it's number 1715 right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Pamela Lezoni. I'm going to be with you until 1800 hours Central African time. Now, the National Adoption Coalition of South Africa 
recently launched Choose to Care, an initiative focusing on crisis pregnancy in a bid to raise awareness of the various alternatives for women experiencing an unplanned pregnancy. Statistics show that 30% of South African teenagers have reported ever having been pregnant, and most of these pregnancies are unplanned. According to NAXA, education is of critical importance in the prevention of teenage pregnancies, and that these young women feel that that there is a role for them in their society over and above motherhood. Consultant to Naxa D. Blackie explains. I think the problem is with teenage pregnancy is that although many people will tell you that the numbers of teenage pregnancies have not increased significantly over the past decade, the problem is that we still have a really high number of young girls falling pregnant. So to put that in perspective, between April 2012 and March 2013, we had about 176,000 teenagers falling pregnant between the ages of 13 and 19, which is a very high number. And part of the problem is not just that there are so many young girls falling pregnant, but also the attitude of society towards these young girls. So there's a lot of anger towards these young girls and a lot of people blaming these young girls and calling them irresponsible and immoral and so on. And the problem is, is that many of these young girls are falling pregnant, you know, not on purpose. You know, these are unplanned and, and crisis pregnancies. Let's elaborate more on the main factors contributing to teenage pregnancy, especially in such large numbers. One of the major, certainly my research indicated that there are a few major challenges, but probably one of the primary challenges is that we are not talking to our young girls about sex education anymore. So families are not talking, parents and mothers are not talking to their young girls about pregnancy. Schools are not taking the responsibility of sex education seriously enough. And the result is that many of the young girls who are falling pregnant are unaware of how conception takes place. When I was doing my research in 2013-2014, many of the young girls that I spoke to who were experiencing a crisis pregnancy would say to me, you know, I didn't even know how you fall pregnant. I thought you had to have sex many times to actually make a baby, which immediately obviously is a huge concern because, you know, if they don't understand how conception takes place, they certainly aren't considering things like preventative measures like the pill or condoms and or the injection or whatever, you know, birth control solutions. So that is a real area of concern. I think the other major issue of concern is the high levels of abuse that's taking place towards young women in this country. So obviously we know that we have the highest levels of rape in the world. But it's not just about rape, it's also just about coercion and really our general views towards having a very patriarchal society where a girl can't turn around to a guy and say, actually, no, I don't want to have sex with you. Those for me are the two major challenges. And now, what's your assessment of support systems or support mechanisms available for young adolescents who find themselves pregnant prematurely? How is the support system? I think that this is one of my major concerns. I was actually at a talk yesterday where the Department of Social Development was talking about the fact that they've created a national adolescent sexual and reproductive health and rights strategy framework. And I keep seeing this in the Department of Social Development. They're really good at coming up with all sorts of strategies, but they're not turning it into action. And this is why the National Adoption Coalition decided to create our Choose to Care campaign. And to give you an indication of the take-up of this Choose to Care campaign, we launched it on the 18th of June of this year for Youth Month. So that's essentially just over three weeks. And since then, we have 15,000 members to our Mixit app. 
and we've responded to over 500 specific queries around the fact that young girls contacting us saying, I'm pregnant, you know, I've left it too late, I can't have an abortion, or asking if they can have an abortion, but in most instances they've left it too late, and then saying, well, what are the solutions available to me? What are the options available to me? So in my understanding of the challenge, you know, I don't believe government's doing enough. Certainly I hear stories from young girls of them trying to go and access contraceptives in clinics, of trying to access abortions in clinics, of trying to just access some kind of support and receiving a lot of criticism from the nurses, a lot of bullying, a lot of anger directed in them to the extent that they actually are afraid of going and seeking help in our clinics where they should be able to seek help. And this is really concerning to me. And it indicates why there's been such a massive take-up of this Choose to Care campaign. Elaborate more on this Choose to Care campaign. There's a, a number of ways that you can contact us via Choose to Care, but just to give you some background into the campaign, the National Adoption Coalition is essentially around asking people to consider the option of adoption. But what we were discovering was that, you know, obviously with the increase in child abandonment, that there clearly isn't anybody helping these young girls with option counselling to say what are the options available to you. So with this in mind, we decided to launch our Choose to Care campaign, and there's a re- reason why we called it Choose to Care and that when it comes to crisis pregnancy, many of these young girls are ridiculed and treated badly by not just their boyfriends, but their community, by their parents. And what we really want to do is to change the mindset from one of shaming and blaming them to one of care and compassion. So how can we get young girls to choose care and compassion for themselves? How can we get their boyfriends to choose care and compassion for them and support them at this very difficult time? How can we get communities to stop pointing fingers at them and blaming them? So that was very much a conscious choice that we don't want to be shaming and blaming these young girls anymore. We don't want to be putting them out on their own and saying that they are the sole problem here. We actually want to encourage everybody to choose to care for these young girls and to support them as communities, as parents, and as individuals. So to contact us, yes, you can get hold of us via our Mixit app, which is under Crisis Pregnancy and Choose to Care. But you can also send us an email at crisispregnancy.org.za or we have an 0800 number that you can call or SMS at any time. Can I give you the number? Yes, you may. So it's 0800-864-658. That's 0800-864-658. And you can call that number or send us an SMS of who you are, where you are, and we will send you the contact details of a child protection organization in your area. That's the Black Year consultant to the National Adoption Coalition of South Africa. She was speaking to Jane Matebula. Now, Nelson Mandela International Day was launched in recognition of Nelson Mandela's birthday on the 18th of July. This was in 2009 when it was launched via a unanimous decision of the UN General Assembly. It was inspired by a call Nelson Mandela made a year earlier for the next generation to take on the burden of leadership in addressing the world's social injustices when he said that it's in your hands now. It's more than a celebration of Madiba's life legacy. It is a global movement to honor his life's work and act to change the world for the better. Our team of journalists and producers will be starting up a vegetable garden at the Kalsi Toilet Center in Soweto tomorrow. To tell us more about the reason for the day and some events happening, Manusha Pillay, General Manager of Communications at Brand South Africa, Mamuli Fese Khakweng, Marketing Manager here at Channel Africa, and Yase Gorlo, Manager at Outreach.
Goodrich and Mandela Day at the Nelson Mandela Foundation discussed the issue earlier. In 2015, I think Mandela Day is even more relevant than it may have been even in 2008 when it was conceived of or 2009 when it was adopted. And I say that because the spirit of Ubuntu, the spirit of togetherness and the spirit of how we build our country together is more important now than it may have been then. We've seen our country go through quite a few challenges in the last few months, um, some of them not the most of, most pleasant. These things have, also, have not had a good impact on the country's reputation. So the spirit of social cohesion that we need to have and the spirit of this joint goal to get to the same place that was espoused by the former president is more important today. Madiba Day, a day just, you know, is it just one day that we can do all of this or should we be celebrating every day? I agree with the criticism on the challenge that Madiba Day should not be just the 18th of July. And it's for that reason that the 2015 program is actually being called Play, Make Every Day a Mandela Day. The spirit, the spirit of Ubuntu, the spirit of unity, the spirit of social cohesion, the spirit of helping each other, it's not something that I think we wake up with on the 18th of July and then we say goodbye to it when we go to bed on the 18th of July. So I think that each of us needs to start being far more conscious about how we interact with, with each other in our country, with each other in our workplaces, with each other in our families. And yes, every day should become a Mandela Day. Mr. Godloth, as part of the Nelson Mandela Foundation, what does this day mean to you? And really, if you can give us an overview of the past few years and how it's actually impacted on dealing with some of these social injustices that uh, Madiba spoke about. Nelson Mandela Day has, in, in its sixth year, it has quite evolved. It was acknowledged by the UN in 2008, uh, excuse me, in 2009, to say on, on his birthday, we want to celebrate the legacy that is so great that is Mr. Mandela. And, and, and over the time, then, we've started on this movement of doing good, you know, this movement of, of understanding what are the values that anchor us as human beings. And the movement that is Mandela Day has started off with people doing a call to action for people to get involved. And over the six years, people have demonstrated that there is always, when there isn't always an opportunity to Mm -hmm. make a difference, they'll get involved. And over the years, we have seen a lot of activities happening everywhere in the world, um, and especially in South Africa. And those are things that, you know, have excited us in Mm -hmm. that we have seen that the legacy has been carried through by a lot of people from all corners of the world. People go out and they really show their support for something. There's always a debate that goes on um, around it. And one of the debates that we discussed a bit earlier on with the ladies around um, uh, should Mandela Mandela Day just be that secluded day that's been put aside and most of the ladies agree that no, it should be um, a lifestyle. It should be something that is done every day. But um, in order for um, for people to come together and actually do good, do you think, in your view, that um, it, it it does indeed need to take a leadership um, and and icons such as the late great Madiba to actually garner that kind of support from the communities globally? Yeah. Look. The the thing is, you know, I, I so agree. I so agree with the ladies with what they have said, mm. and I think, it, it, and it it is that exactly that is important about uh, understanding what Mandela Day is. Mandela Day is not about just a day. It's not just about the birthday. It's mm. about a legacy. It's about understanding Ubuntu as South Africans. It's about us as Africans. All all. all 
all of us understanding that it is an opportunity of doing good. So um, the one thing that we have emphasized and we're trying to, 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 to get everyone to understand is that mm-hmm. it is beyond the birthday. Mm-hmm. It is beyond you going once off mm-hmm. to a home and doing good in that uh, for just that day. It's yeah. understanding that there's a greater need and the, uh, and giving should not just be about one day. We must leave the, uh, the, the legacy and we must celebrate the legacy, uh, beyond the 18th and make every day a Mandela day. Now, earlier I promised that I would give an account of exactly what the station in itself is planning to do for Mandela Day. Now, also give uh, Manusha an opportunity as Brand South Africa to elaborate on some of the plans that they have. But uh, Mamulife, if you can give us uh, just a breakdown of exactly what it is that Channel Africa has planned. With the SABC, with all the different platforms, we, I mean, every platform, we, every year we do something for Mandela Day. This year we are partnering with uh, the Salvation Army. Mm-hmm. We uh, will be in Soweto at the Kalsitole Center and we'll be doing the soil, the mm-hmm. soil work. We're going to plant a fruit and vegetable garden for the kids there because there are about over 100 kids who are living in the home mm-hmm. and they are different ages. We will be joined by the ages 10 to 18, 18-year-olds 18 and we we definitely going to start a good uh, vegetable fruit garden for them and uh, we are very fortunate to be partnering with Fertilis and we are going to plant the garden and we're also going to teach the people at the center how to maintain that garden for sustainability purposes because we just don't want to go there mm. and plant the garden and uh, not teach them thing. and mm. it becomes a once of thing so over over time we will keep on going and getting to see how the the garden is going because it is an organic garden manusha when we speak of mandela day um uh, of course you can't um, um speak mandela and you don't include south africa now let's look at the impact that um, um, this uh, day specifically has on uh, the brand of uh, South Africa um, in its entirety. The former president's legacy still resonates very strongly with the South African brand. He, he's one of the icons, symbols, or the personality most strongly associated with our country. People do not think of South Africa in isolation of Nelson Mandela, and they do not think of Nelson Mandela in isolation of um, South Africa. And I think that is why it, it's even easier for us to make every day a Mandela Day, because if our brand is so tightly entwined with his personality, his values, his spirit, then it should be easy for us to live every day in the way in which he would have liked us to live. That is Manusha Pillay. She's the general manager of communications at Brand South Africa. You also heard from Mamulife Esekha Kweng, who is the marketing manager here at Channel Africa. There's also Iase Kotlo, who is the manager at Outreach and Mandela Day at the Nelson Mandela Foundation. 17.30 Central African Time. Let's get to news headlines from Enmusa. A very good afternoon to you. Kenya says the mastermind of the Garissa University attack is among four key Al-Shabaab leaders killed in a U.S. drone attack. Egypt, Islamic State affiliate, says it attacked an Egyptian naval vessel in the Mediterranean Sea with a rocket. And South African political party, the Freedom Front Plus, has described as credible 
The source of information that the South Africans detained in China were arrested for suspected espionage. Those are the stories making headlines. Africa Digest. You're listening to Africa Digest. Thank you very much for staying with us. You're listening to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. With Ms. Pomela Lezondi with you until 1800 hours Central African time this evening. Now, based on the world's current production trends, nearly half of the globe's 4.5 billion people will not meet their nutritional needs by 2040. This is according to a food security report recently released by the Enough Movement, which is committed to building a food secure world within the next 35 years. The movement is spearheaded by Elanco, a global innovation-driven company that develops and markets products to improve animal health and food animal production in more than 75 countries. For more on this issue, we joined on the line by regional director of Elanco South Africa, Andre Westerfeld. Good afternoon and welcome to Channel Africa, Andre. Good afternoon, Supermile. How are you doing? I'm all right. Now, Andre, if you could just tell us uh, what the current world's food production trends are. Currently, based on the growing population, we expect that approximately half the world's population will struggle to find sustainable quality food on a daily basis. Um, And that's why we believe there is a problem with food production as it stands today. Um. And when we talk about food security, what exactly are we talking about? We, we're not just talking mm. hunger, are we? No, no. Food security is far more than that. It's really about making sure that everybody has the ability to get enough quality food on a daily basis. And, and it's not only just about having access to food, but more importantly, quality, nutritious food. You know, a lot of people end up eating food that is not necessarily nutritious, or containing the nutrients that they actually require for growth and development. Um, And that's a challenge that we don't have only in Africa and in Asia, but in Europe, North America as well. It's a common factor that face many people on a daily basis. What's causing this in countries that should be food secure? Essentially, the growing population and increasing challenges to produce enough food that is safe and affordable. Uh, And it's not only just about the availability of the food, but also affordability of that food. Uh, You know, frequently what we find in Europe and North America is families have to make a choice between uh, buying enough food that is not necessarily the right food or the nutritious food, purely because that's all they can afford. Um, You know, a a litre of Coca-Cola costs less than a litre of milk. Um, So if you're a family that's short of money, you may be faced with that kind of choice when you're standing in a supermarket. Do I buy a litre of Coke to at least give my family something to drink, or do I buy a litre of milk that's almost double the price of a litre of Coke? Um, And you are talking about innovation when it comes to this. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about that? What do you mean when you say innovation in in order to make people food secure? Yeah, in the history of mankind, we've always been faced with challenges, and we've always one way or the other, relied on innovation to help us solve those challenges. And we believe that producing enough food is no different. Um, We've come through uh, hundreds of years of improving the genetics of animals and crops 
so that we can essentially get bigger animals, more more eggs from a single hen, and, and that innovation needs to continue. We need to now take it to the next level um, where we actually look at not only the genetics but also the way that we farm with animals, the feed that we give to animals, and as well as that, the, the products that we provide to animals to make sure that they're healthy enough to produce enough food. So it's a, a view across the total production chain. And innovation is the, is the only way that we're going to solve this problem. As it is, we consume too much of the, the natural resources that are available to us to produce food. So the, the answer is not in chopping up and opening up more farmlands. It's using the available land, water, and resources more efficiently so that we can produce more with less. Uh, but to live in a fast food culture, Andre, um, whether you're in South Africa, whether you are in parts of Europe mm-hmm. or even North America, um, where people have busy lives, can one um, get fast food and but at the same time continue to be food secure? You know, the two are not mutually exclusive. Um, uh, and, and I'm not in a position to really comment on the fast food, food industry. Uh, but if we look at what they're doing every day, they are making efforts on a daily basis to improve the nutritional value and the quality of the food that they make available to their customers. Uh, The challenge for the food chain and companies like Elanco as well as the producers of protein is to make sure that we can provide enough food to those retailers and fast food producers that is quality and affordable that they can then pass that on to their consumer. Uh, so it's, a, it's an entire chain, and everybody has a role to play. Mm. Uh, you're talking about changing the nature in which people farm. Is, is that not going to end up with more expensive meat? That's what, what we're saying from a, an Elanco and an NAF perspective, is we need to challenge the way that we are farming today and ensure that we give the farmers a choice. And, and we believe firmly in giving people choice. So the farmer should be able to go out there, make an assessment, and decide what is the most cost-effective way of farming, um, be that going in organic or be that in adopting innovation and technology. We honestly believe that that is the farmer's choice, and the farmer needs to decide what is the best way that they can utilize the land that they have to produce food that is affordable and cost-effective. Why is this important to Elanco? Elanco has, has always been involved in animal health, and we go back 60, 60 to 70 years. And our focus is really on healthy animals, allowing us to produce more food for people. Um, we also believe as a company that our role is to make a difference. You know, we come to work every day to make a difference to the world we live in and the communities that we live in. And that's why we believe getting involved in something like food security and helping farmers produce more food cost-effectively is a really worthwhile cause. And as a company and as an employee, it gives us something to contribute back to society on a daily basis. Andre Westerfeld, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. Andre Westerfeld is Regional Director of Elanco South Africa. The world remains beset by so much human suffering, poverty, and deprivation. It is in your hands to make of our world a better one for all.
from July 18, raise your hand and make a dedicated effort to keep helping others in any way you can. Make every day a Mandela Day. It is in your hands to make a difference. 1739 Central African Time. A new $1 million award which aims to reward innovations in healthcare that will help reduce child deaths in developing countries has been launched. The Healthcare Innovation Award is the brainchild of the international profit or non-profit organization Save the Children and a British pharmaceutical company GlaxoSmithKline. Organizations from across developing countries can now nominate examples of innovative health approaches they have implemented. These approaches must have resulted in tangible improvements to the survival of children under the age of five, be sustainable and have the potential to be scaled up and replicated. For more about the award, here's Ramil Burden, who is the Vice President of Africa and Developing Countries at GlaxoSmithKline. This is the third year we've been running the award and it's part of our partnership with Save the Children, which we launched um, three years ago. The partnership is a broad-based partnership with our overall objective to save one million children's lives. And we do this through fundraising, through employee engagement, through research and development, through investment in frontline healthcare workers and a whole range of other activities where we're using our core business skills and save the children are using their core skills to try and save a million children's lives. Why a special focus on innovations? Well, we're an innovative company ourselves, so GSK. We spend billions of pounds each year on innovation and investment in research and development. We really believe that innovation is the lifeblood of our company. We think that in Africa, as lots of other people think, there's a lot of innovation going on. Everyone talks about mobile phones and the use of M-Health and things like M-Pesa in Kenya, where I live, for example. There's a very fertile ground here in terms of innovation. And now I think, and it's different to the innovation that would happen in the Western world or in Europe or in the United States. So I think there's a lot of innovation that's happening. I think innovation is really the only way to reach everybody in Africa. If you think about it, um, you know, two-thirds of the population of Africa live in rural areas. Africa, of course, is an enormous landmass, you know, bigger than China, the U.S., Europe, all put together. We need to find different ways, different models to deliver healthcare, and the only way you can do that given all of the things I've just mentioned is through innovation. Let's take the Ebola epidemic as one example. Do you think that it would have made a lot of difference if the countries affected had the approaches, you know, to address the many challenges that have weakened their healthcare systems? So it's hard to answer a hypothetical question, but I think from the experience we have working with Save the Children and AMREF in Africa is that when you invest in frontline healthcare workers, you really strengthen the overall healthcare system. So you empower communities, you give information to mothers and to families, you increase vaccination rates, you give basic information which reduces people's anxieties about healthcare, you introduce them to the healthcare system, the formal healthcare system, and you change their health-seeking behaviors. And information is really key here. On Monday of this week, I was in McQuaney County in Kenya, where I live, which is somewhere between Mombasa and Nairobi, so it's a very rural, remote area. It's fascinating to see how information is being used, how phones are being used to collect information about healthcare status, 
but also to send information to healthcare workers so that they know what to look for, where there may be outbreaks of certain neglect, tropical diseases, etc., and also what information they should be giving to the communities to help them cope with their specific challenges. You know, we think with our partner Save the Children that in West Africa, in the three most affected countries that were affected by Ebola and are still being affected by Ebola, we think that a stronger frontline healthcare worker system, both in terms of resources, as in the number of people there, and also in terms of information given to them and their ability of them to talk to the community as respected members of the community, could well have had a very significant impact on the control of the disease. From about April time of last year, when our partners on the ground were telling us about the Ebola outbreak, long before the global media really got interested in this. We started investing in new programs for healthcare workers. So we invested £350,000, so 600-odd-thousand US dollars, in strengthening frontline healthcare workers in the three most affected countries through Save the Children because we could see that that was going to be a key component to helping control Ebola. Tell us about the judging process as well as the criteria that you will use to select the winners. So the process is we've put the call out now. So the call is you have to be from the developing world. So, you know, organizations in the United States cannot apply for this, partly because we need to make sure that the innovation can be scaled up and is sustainable. So if you've got a brilliant idea in your bedroom, unfortunately you can't apply for this award. Then there's an internal GSK Save the Children um, panel, which produces a shortlist. And then it goes to external independent board of experts. They then make a recommendation of the two or three, possibly four best ideas. And then we also decide how the money, so the one million US dollars, is then divided between the two, three, four winners. For organizations that believe that they have some ambitious ideas that can change the lives of many for the better, how can they enter? So they need to go to our website, gsk.com. The press release also has information on how to do that. It's a very simple process to enter. Uh, You have to fill out a form uh, which explains what your innovation is and what the impact and sustainability of it is and how, if you won the award, you would help scale up this beyond your local area to either nationally or even better to across the entire subcontinent of sub-Saharan Africa or even better than that across all developing world countries. That is Rumel Burden, Vice President for Africa and Developing Countries at GlaxoSmithKline, speaking to Elizabeth Lidecha. 17.45 Central African Time. Here's Wissani Matebula with your economic news. Good evening. Thanks, as Pumilele. Energy experts at the PowerGen Africa Conference in Cape Town, South Africa, have called on African governments to develop policies and regulations that will encourage innovative business models to increase electrification. The three-day conference is looking at sustainable ways to meet the growing demand for electricity on the continent. One of the speakers, Anjali Hoekstra, from Price Waterhouse Coopers, explains how innovation can help. 
one that I heard about is um, is solar panels uh, that they have like in a, in a container itself uh, close to like a school and um, children that go to school in the morning they will take like the battery packs you know with them to to go to school during the day like the battery packs will be charged they're walking back to the homes and they have electricity at night you know so those are innovative type of business models that that regulators and governments do need to look at and Zimbabwe's tobacco sales have dropped 8.5 percent to 188 million kilograms this year. This comes after drought in the southern African nation affected production of the country's top export earner. Farmers were paid $555 million for tobacco sold to auctions in private companies down from $654 million last year. The tobacco selling season ended on Wednesday. Private companies and auctions buy their crop from farmers and process it before exporting. Zimbabwe exports up to 90% of its tobacco, mostly to China, Europe and South Africa. Last year, exports totaled $842 million, the bulk going to China. Shares in Rwanda's Crystal Telecom, which owns a 20% stake in mobile operator MTN Rwanda Cell, has traded for the first time on Thursday at a 38% premium to their initial public offering price. The shares started trading at 19 American cents. About 2,000 shares in the company changed hands. The offer, which closed in June, was the first on the Rwanda bourse since 2011. Crystal Telecom is the third company to have a primary listing on the boards of the African nation. And an eight-week-long strike by employees of South African mobile operator MTN has finally come to an end. Labor Union, CWU, says it has reached an agreement with the mobile giant. About a 1,000 workers are expected back at work next week Monday. Horisani Stoll has more. Workers will receive a 12% bonus payment and some of the casual workers will be absorbed by MTN as permanent employees. The company suffered the longest industrial election in its history. Early this week, MTN's newly appointed CEO, Mteto Nyati, committed to ending the strike. It's not yet clear as to how much of an increase in salary workers are going to get. The union says this will be clear within a month. The CEO of Harmony Gold, uh, Graham Briggs, is retiring as the head of the company as well as a member of the company's board. He was appointed CEO in 2008. Chairperson of Harmony, Patrice Motsipe, has wished uh, Briggs uh, well and says it was a privilege to work with him. The company will now commence the search for the new CEO. Briggs has agreed to remain within the company up until a suitable candidate has been found. Murafetaban reports. 62-year-old Briggs has been with the company for 20 years and has a long distinguished career in the mining industry. Chairman of the company, Patrice Mozepe, says the board will start searching for the new leader. He further says the global mining industry is currently experiencing challenging times and is committed to ensuring that Harmony continues to be a globally competitive company. A South African retailer, Woolworths, has announced the maturity of its Black Economic Empowerment Employee Share Ownership Scheme. It has paid out $30 million in dividends during the life of the scheme. The scheme was launched in 2007 and allocated the previously disadvantaged employees. Over the past eight years, 
Woolworths has also created $250 million for the participants. The scheme was opened to all employees who were employed from the 1st of May 2007 and were still employed at the initial vesting date of uh, June for the same year, with the exception of white employees. And uh, finally, South African retailer Trueworths International says its full-year headline earnings per share grew by between 2% and 4%, beating the 1.7% forecast by analysts. The fashion retailer also grew its revenue for the year through June more than expected, increasing sales by 8.2% to 935 million US dollars. Headline earnings per share is the key measure used in South Africa and strips out certain one-off items. And that's how it's looking. Thank you very much, Rosani. And your sports news is coming from Mosibudi Makura. Good evening, sports fans, and starting off with football news, Zifa President Githbart Dube has expressed genuine fears that Zimbabwe could be kicked out of the 2018 World Cup tournament after he revealed on Wednesday that the association was not in a position to meet FIFA's conditions to settle Brazilian coach Velahayo's debts to get the ban imposed on the nation lifted. Channel Africa sports editor Tabison Dima has the story. Zimbabwe was expelled from the 2018 World Cup two months ago following their failure to pay the Brazilian coach his outstanding monies which amounts to $81,000 including interests. This despite indications by the Minister of Sports, Arts and Culture, Andrew Langa, who said back in March that government had chipped in to help rescue the situation. On Wednesday, Dube said the association is keen to have the Warriors participate in the FIFA World Cup qualifiers, but time was running out. Zifa has less than 10 days before the 2018 FIFA World Cup qualifier draw is conducted. The draw will be conducted in Russia next Saturday. So on football news, Nigeria's women's senior team captain Evelyn Nabubukwe says her side is ready to make up for their absence at the women football event of the 2012 London Olympic Games. The African champions will square up against Equatorial Guinea in the first fixture clash of the 2016 Olympics qualifying match on Saturday at the Abuja Stadium. Nabubukwe says her side is in a perfect mood to achieve a convincing victory against Equatorial Guinea. The winner of the two-legged clash will engage... Um, the winner of the duel involving South Africa and Kenya for a spot in the 2016 Olympics. At the same time, Mayana Mayana team captain Janine van Veek says they don't know much about their opponents, Kenya, but says they will go out there and get the desired result. Uh, we didn't, haven't faced them at all. Uh, we don't know much about Kenya. Uh, we've never played them before, so we do know that they've beaten Botswana to progress to the next round. Um, and so we know that they also have two very quick strikers, but uh, we have to adapt to their, their style of play, but also concentrate on our own. And uh, we are preparing really well, and um, hopefully we can get as many goals um, 
on Saturday to, to give us a really convincing win um, and also make it easier for us going into the second leg where we play Kenya at home. And fun in tennis news, South Africa's top-ranked quads player Lucas Sitole is through to the semi-finals of the British Open. This after beating local Anthony Cortel, 6-love, six 6-2 six in the quarterfinals earlier this morning. Watch your tennis South Africa general manager Karen Losh has the details. Lucas was on court early this morning um, in the quarterfinals of the British Open uh, where he was up against Anthony Cottrell. He's played him twice before in the last month and today he had a really good performance against him, beating him 6-love, six 6-2 to, prog- to progress into the semi-finals, uh, where he will wait for the win of Jamie Burdekin or David Wagner, um, and that will be played tomorrow. Later on court today, we've got Khutata Mondiane um, against Anik van Kurt, um, who's number three in the world, so a really tough match for KG, so we look forward to seeing how she will perform later in the day today. The Zari Sports News at the Sun. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Africa Digest. Seventeen fifty-six Central African time. Let's take a look at your top stories on Africa Digest. The International Committee to Protect Journalists accuses Kenyan authorities of undermining press freedom. Nearly half of the globe's 4.5 billion people will not meet their nutritional needs by 2040. And in sport, Zifa president expresses fears that Zimbabwe could be kicked out of the 2018 World Cup. And that wraps up Africa Digest for today. From myself, Spomele Lezondi, producer Lebumuna Mokholu, technical producer and the rest of the Africa Digest team. Thank you very much for listening. Taking us to the top of the hour and for the news is Slayer Lusiluta with By the Side.